0: This is Ghosts for People Too, a podcast that investigates ghosts through the lens of the arts and humanities. This is Quest speaking. What seems to be the problem?
1: Hi, yeah, I'm Annabelle and there's something strange in my neighborhood.
0: Hmm, would you say it qualifies as something weird?
1: Yeah, and it doesn't look good. I'm seeing things running through my head. There's an invisible man sleeping in my bed. Alright,
0: we'll send our boys out there. In the meantime, you should prepare yourself for haunted refrigerators, occult architecture, ancient Babylonian deities, Neil Ciceriga, four generations of spiritualists, yonis out the wazoo, and a whole lot of misogyny.
1: Well, thanks for the heads up, but I ain't afraid of no ghost. Rev up the ectomobile, strap on your proton packs, and whatever you do don't cross the streams because today we're talking about ghostbusters right that's what you're gonna edit that in right no no i'm keeping it with that oops what have i done all right so
0: last time we met up We were trying to figure out what episode we wanted to do next. And we were like, let's do something easy, breezy, beautiful, cover girl.
1: We've been through a lot this year. We've been stressing ourselves out, burning out. And we just wanted something fun. Movie night vibes.
0: 80s popcorn. Right. So we chose Ghostbusters.
1: It wasn't that. It wasn't casual 80s slumber party popcorn vibes. It was cold, hard research, right?
2: <laughs>
1: the problem is, so
0: I am the youngest sibling. And... <laughs> is that the problem? Oh, that's my... <laughs> used to talk to my therapist, honey. <laughs> so there's a lot of 80s media specifically that everybody always expected me to know. Everybody... Thought that I just would have this general familiarity with. But the problem was my siblings watched it and I was around it. But I never actually sat down and paid attention to it. So now as an adult, I'm finally sitting down and watching some of these 80s movies. And sometimes they don't hold up. Yeah. And this was one of those cases.
1: Yeah, I I agree. I had a different childhood experience when it comes to 80s movies. My parents were very much a part of counterculture in the 1980s, and so they did not like a lot of mainstream media, and so it was just not in the household, and I I didn't have siblings to introduce that stuff to me. So I had a knowledge of Ghostbusters that was very much just whatever had seeped into the culture. That's what I knew. So no idea about the plot, basically had seen the costumes, the devices, Slimers, like that was it. And I thought Slimer was a single character. I thought that was the name of a guy.
0: I mean, it kind of is. Is it? It is.
1: His name is Slimer.
0: Let's get there later. Okay. But But kind of.
1: Also, great memoir title. (laughs) His name is Slimer. Okay, should we continue on? Yeah. So we're going to give a synopsis. I felt that there needed to be a spoiler alert here because I knew nothing about this movie, but uh, feel free to laugh at me for being young and not paying attention. So if you haven't seen Ghostbusters, we're obviously going to talk about the whole plot here. I don't think it would ruin your experience of the movie knowing any of this, though, right?
0: I would say that... It would be hard to have a good experience in 2023 seeing Ghostbusters for the first time.
1: I would agree with that. (laughs) Oh, so before we do this, because we both had very different experiences with our knowledge of Ghostbusters, and we assumed this was going to be easy breezy and just all about the ghosts and maybe talking a little bit about ghost lore or something like that, and otherwise just saying, how do these ghosts function? I, I thought it'd be fun for us each to say what we thought this movie viewing experience would be like, what we thought it was going to be about. Um, so if, if you opened the TV guide in your mind, what would you think you were getting into What would be the description of Ghostbusters?
0: I think you should go first because I did actually ever see some of it.
1: Okay. I'll go first. So I thought this was going to be a movie about some men in suits, as in like coveralls, learning to create devices that capture ghosts, discovering that there are ghosts, And then coming up with the technology to capture them. I thought we were going to have sort of like a progression of better and better technology. A quest for knowledge. Let's find out what ghosts are. Deep spiritual moment where somebody like encounters the ghost of someone they know. And then has to suck them up with a machine. And then just some silly antics with the fun theme song. That's what I thought Ghostbusters was going to be about.
0: Okay, I knew that they started a business. I knew that there were three, and then eventually four. And I knew that Zool was something.
1: Zool was a total surprise to me, which will—I'm sure—we will talk about. Yes. More. And
0: I knew about the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man. I hate that freaking marshmallow.
1: I also did not know about that.
0: Wow. Yeah. Okay.
1: I was coming in pretty fresh.
0: Yeah, like a wee babe.
1: A wee babe with too much knowledge. I, I was like a wee babe that had already eaten of the fruit. Of knowledge of good and evil, (laughs) which kind of describes my childhood also. (laughs) But um, (laughs) let's get to the real synopsis. Yeah.
0: Yeah. We also wanted to give a quick disclaimer. It is the middle of summer in Los Angeles. We have an air conditioner running. And if you don't like it, we're not that sorry.
1: Yeah, it is nice and cool at 93 degrees Fahrenheit right now. So we're not giving it up.
0: So, Ghostbusters, 1984.
1: When Columbia University fires its three professors of parapsychology, the trio starts up a paranormal extermination agency, the Ghostbusters. The Ghostbusters are unable to help their first client, Dana Barrett, who saw an ominous portal open up in her refrigerator, but find themselves on the road to success after apprehending their first apparition. A pair of demonic beings possess Dana and her neighbor, Lewis, in order to summon Gozer, the ancient destructive deity responsible for New York's surge of paranormal activity. Meanwhile, the EPA arrests the Ghostbusters and releases the specters they've captured. The Ghostbusters are swiftly set free by the mayor to halt the coming apocalypse. They battle Gozer, who has assumed the form of the Stay puffed Marshmallow Man, and defeat her by crossing their proton streams, saving New York and the planet. The end.
0: So how surprised were you by all of that?
1: I was really surprised that there was an apocalypse plot. I did not think it would get that big. And I think I'll talk about that when we get to our just general reactions about the movie. And I also didn't think there was going to be any ancient deity stuff going on. I really thought it was going to be campy ghost hunting, you know? Yeah. I thought that would be the whole thing. But yeah, it was a completely different movie from what I expected it to be. I think maybe I should have expected what I got because it did feel very of its time. That's what I'll say about that.
0: Yeah, that's fair. The one thing I will say right now is that since I knew about Zool and it felt like Zool was kind of this inside joke between Ghostbusters fandom... I was surprised when Gozer popped up because I didn't expect there to be a big or bad.
1: Ah, uh, okay. Like, oh my gosh, there's another boss. Like yeah. that kind of moment. Yeah.
0: Yeah. In fact, I kind of felt like Zul was small potatoes.
1: Yeah. Just possession. Whatever. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so we're going to talk about the production and behind the scenes a little bit. In 1980s cinema, according to Linda Bradley, ghosts are inconceivable unless embodied, and they're used for spectacular displays of special effects, which is very obvious when you watch Ghostbusters. Yes. James A. Miller says, quote, The ghosts in Ghostbusters are a famous example of this trend because they are explicitly objectified as phenomena or special effect without roots in history or memory. And that's also going to be really central to this episode, because these are the least ghostly ghosts that we are going to ghost on this ghost ghost.
1: And it's all very silly. You you do feel like something is at stake when they are encountering ghosts. But at the same time, underlying everything is this is a goofy, fun, go to the movies with your friends and family type of film. That's the intention. Yeah. And and to make people impressed and entertained by the way that they use the ghosts. And it did, or not it, but a man, (laughs) Richard Edlund, VFX supervisor for Ghostbusters, won Oscars for Best Visual Effects for A New Hope and Raiders of the Lost Ark. And he was nominated for Poltergeist Ghostbusters 2010, The Year We Make Contact, Poltergeist 2, Die Hard, and Alien 3.
0: So it's it's good to look at. It is fun to see the way that they realize these ghosts. There were 200 effects shots utilizing a wide variety of techniques, including matte paintings, stop motion, Puppetry. They had four different suits for the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man, so that way from each different angle you wouldn't see a seam.
1: That's really impressive.
0: So it's a visual marvel. It is a blockbuster in that way that horror and sci fi and fantasy movies get to be. Absolutely. And it doesn't take itself too seriously, sometimes to its own detriment. Agreed. What I thought was also really important to know when you look at it and realize, wait, these are not ghosts in the traditional sense, is to know that the concept that you see was not the original concept. So Dan Aykroyd originally wrote Ghostbusters in order to act alongside John Belushi, who died suddenly in 1982, which means also that there's a haunting going on here, kind of. There's the Mm -hmm. presence of the person who was supposed to be in it. The original concept for the script, however, involved the duo venturing through time and space, battling supernatural threats. That idea was deemed unproducible, and Ramus was brought on to help transform the script into what we see today. And I think that that's really evident when you look at the way that these ghosts are trans-dimensional.
1: And in some ways more monster-like Than what we would expect from a stereotypical ghost. Especially with all of the practical effects that are used. Like the slimers look really. They have a visceral quality to them because they are actual practical effects. Right. um, Probably mixed with things that I don't understand (laughs) as a commoner. Maybe some overlay projection, maybe even early computer. Yeah, stuff going on, but they're monster-like, right? And they're
0: not monster-like in a, in the the theory way. They're just monster-like, as in more like ooga booga booga. I'm gonna get you. Like and I'm less... I'm
1: eating plates of beans with my nasty mouth, kind of monster, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> Who's that eating that nasty food?
0: Nasty ghosts. <laughs> That's right.
1: I actually came across, side note, I came across someone using a GIF of a slimer eating beans in response to, this is gross, (laughs) in in response to a post about eating ass. God damn it. You can cut that. (laughs) If any of my students are listening, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's talk about, (laughs) stop laughing and move on to some serious matters. There's nothing serious
0: about Ghostbusters. Or is there? Ooh. Ooh,
1: okay, let's talk about the impact and legacy.
0: So, Ghostbusters is inescapable. Like, I mean, I think it's especially easy to say that after it's been rebooted in the last couple years. Yeah. But even when it was just that one film... It was so successful that it turned into a whole franchise for decades and decades. Following the movie, we got the real Ghostbusters animated series, which ran from 1986 to 91. There were Ghostbusters comic books, which started based on the real Ghostbusters, and those have been published since 1988, ongoing. There was a sequel to Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters 2, released in 89.
1: That's not the topic here today, though. There have been Ghostbusters video games featured on everything from home consoles to mobile gaming to pinball and pachinko machines to VR devices. Ghostbusters Answer the Call 2016, Ghostbusters Afterlife 2021, and an upcoming sequel to Afterlife to be released in 2023. So it's... I'm
0: confused how that is apparently coming out this year and we still don't know the subtitle.
1: We haven't heard any... I mean... You know that I'm kind of out of the loop, but yeah. still haven't heard anything about it.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's based on whenever this research was done, I'm sure by the time I'm done editing, it will have a trailer and who knows what else. Uh,
1: maybe we'll see. This is something that has been a major reference for me, which is that it's referenced in Stranger Things. <laughs> and obviously influential to Luigi's Mansion as we discussed in a previous episode and Danny Phantom also and I'm sure so many other shows and movies that we can't list
0: yeah the video game sparked a wonderful viral moment when you beat the game the screen pops up saying congratulation you have completed a great game and proved the justice of our culture. Now go and rest our heroes.
1: Beautiful. I love the poetry that comes out of attempting to speak a language that is not familiar to you. Yeah, and I mean, I
0: couldn't do any better.
1: No, I'm sure this is how people were hearing me speak when I was in Italy this summer. Oh, God, yeah. (laughs) I'm sure.
0: My favorite legacy of Ghostbusters is the song
1: yes agreed and probably my first exposure to ghostbusters also because in the halloween parades at our elementary school this was a fixture
0: yes and at every i'm sure that every halloween parade as long as it's not run by some weird fundamentalist christians Mm -hmm. is going to feature ghostbusters and thriller Oh, yeah. You can't escape them. No. So Ghostbusters, the song from the movie by Ray Parker Jr., was nominated for Best Original Song.
1: As it should have been.
0: It reached number one on the Billboard Hot 100 two months after the film's release and remained there for three weeks. Hell yeah. Merchandise remains ever popular, which leads me to a really good but brief anecdote. When my eldest sister, Normandy, was... In, I think it was kindergarten, but I can't say for certain. My parents forgot about school picture day entirely. Where you would normally send your kid to school in something kind of nice. And so there are these beautiful school portraits of her holding a rose and holding a parasol while she is wearing a Ghostbusters shirt.
1: It's such a time stamp. It's such a cultural relic. I love everything about it. Iconic.
0: This was the stupidest part of my research, but I just have to get it out there because, in doing research on Ghostbusters, I would type the word Ghostbusters into Google Scholar or JSTOR or whatever, and a lot of things that came up were not about Ghostbusters.
1: I had the same experience. Okay, I'm
0: so glad that it's I was a term. Not alone there. Yeah, that's
1: used now. So
0: this, I will just breeze through this really quickly, though. Feel free to react. Sure. But here are. Some of the topics that came up with paper titles referencing Ghostbusters that are not about Ghostbusters 1984 or what the other majority of the papers were about Ghostbusters 2016 and Gamergate and the culture war and all of that shit, which is important and we'll talk about that another day. We'll talk about it a tiny bit today, but meh. So, Computer Forensics and Family Law, Vineland, a 1990 political satire novel. Biomedical publishing, scientific debunking of the paranormal, malware detection, the airline industry during COVID, unitary and causality of non-equilibrium effective field theories, that's physics, propagating auxiliary fields, that's physics, eavesdropping in mobile communications, Charles Darwin and spiritualism, colorectal liver metastases, anomaly detection in file system accesses, supergravity, that's physics, a memo from the internet engineering task force educational leadership a parts based nmf algorithm the coding language used in mozilla firefox extensions get firefox and stop using chrome that's a side note
1: the software wow, industry I feel really called out right now go on and learning analytics And what I think is interesting about this, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is what I came across, is sometimes these papers were referencing the film, and other times they were using the word Ghostbusters as a metaphor in whatever research they were doing, and it was never the same metaphor, so it's not like we're using this word culturally- across the board in the same way as some sort of idiom or slang. It's just that the idea of ghost busting seems to be applicable to a bunch of different categories. Right? Yeah,
0: I do think that there is a specific concept in physics mm. that is referred to with the term ghostbusters, so those ones may have been referring repeatedly to the same thing. Right. But the others exactly. It was all just metaphoric or a handy quick turn of phrase that they just assumed that people would get what they were getting at.
1: That's so interesting. I know. It also made this a real pain in the booty. Yeah. To research. <laughs> so we said we're not going to be talking much about the 2016 Ghostbusters and we're really not. Um, we'll save that for another time. But you have to talk about fandom when you talk about this film because it's Really one of the, if not the first, then one of the most emblematic examples of fandom in the 1980s. And I think Stranger Things does a good job of showing that alongside Dungeons & Dragons. So I want to share this idea from a paper by William Proctor called Bitches Ain't Gonna Hunt No Ghosts. Totemic Nostalgia, Toxic Fandom, and the Ghostbusters Platonic. And in this paper, William Proctor categorizes Ghostbusters fandom as totemic nostalgia. And what that is, is a form of protectionism centered on an effective relationship with a text, usually forged in early childhood. So this feeling of protectionism, this feeling of, I said affective, but it's really affective relationship with a text focuses on the totemic object, which is the text itself, which is in this case, Ghostbusters, the film or the franchise, which Proctor defines as a primary text that opens up a mnemonic conduit to an idealized history of nostalgic narratives. ...comprised by intimations of selfhood and trajectories of the self. In other words, the film goes beyond being a happy memory from childhood... ...and becomes a spiritual emblem for fans. It goes beyond being what it is. It becomes something bigger. It becomes a way in which the fans define themselves... And it's also, it's not just like a contemporary fandom where you, for example, realize that you really love My Little Pony. Although that's a bad example because I think that also is wrapped up in nostalgia.
0: Yeah, I think that so much, especially in this current cultural moment, of fandom is tied with nostalgia.
1: Yeah. And so so the idea that it was a better time, quote-unquote, and that's part of what makes it a spiritual emblem is really important, which is why it's called totemic nostalgia. You have right. the, the totem, which is the film, and the nostalgia, which is the feeling that goes along with it. Memory.
0: Right. And I mean, easy mnemonic that totemic typically conjures ideas of religion for people.
1: Right. And so Ghostbusters is an example of a fandom that puts this content on a pedestal. And because it is part of the identity of the fans, the argument that Proctor makes is that one of the reasons that fans got so... Violent and angry about the reboot was that the film was not just a film and it wasn't just something they really, really loved. It was something that helped them to construct their identity as boys and young men and now men of age or older men. (laughs) Um, And so this also brings me to this idea of nostalgia and ghosts. And I'm really just going to touch on this because I think it's kind of complicated and particular to different situations. But I want to share this quotation from a novel that I have not read, but I read an article by the author that included this quote talking about nostalgia and ghosts. It's called The Hollow Kind by Andy Davidson. And the quote is as follows I was happy. The end except it's never the end with memory. Memories give way to more memories. Locked doors fly open and the ghosts stream out. Haunting. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Quest was... uh, Pogging. Pogging? Is that what you call that?
0: Oh, yeah. Pog champ face.
1: Okay. Jaw dropped in an oh, Yeah. (laughs) So I think that nostalgia and ghosts have a really interesting relationship. And my concept of this relationship is that while nostalgia is the desire for a lost past, ghosts can be the emergence of a suppressed past. So we have this tension between something that you're longing for that you want to remember and something that comes back that perhaps you don't want to remember. But we have gotten ourselves into this insane postmodern cultural situation where we long for ghostly things. And many contemporary fans seem to long for the past that Ghostbusters represents, which we will definitely deconstruct in this episode. Because hashtag problematic
0: Um, (laughs)
1: perhaps they're longing for the cultural norms of the 1980s or the macho romp of outlaw nerds who capture and destroy the uncertain in this movie they suppress and contain the feminine the ancient and other threats from the shadows that we will explore in the episode and yet we're in this era of media and maybe it's because a lot of the ghosts in films like this have become neutralized and almost a comedic relief, even though they're supposed to be spirits and creepy things and dead people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But we are in this really strange territory in which Americans develop nostalgia for the suppressed monsters of the past. So things that we don't want to remember, like male dominance, but also just the fun of the fun of ghosts. My examples are Norman Rockwell and Vintage Halloween. We have this really deep nostalgia for that imagery, which I think in a lot of ways is neutralized ghosts. And monsters, monster movies and classic horror. Sometimes we've even found ourselves in a place where we see these films as parody when they were originally scary. And then nostalgia has this way of opening up channels for haunting where we start off in this sort of neutral longing for the fun of ghosts and find ourselves deep in things that maybe we were trying to suppress. Maybe we're surprised by our fear. Maybe we are like, oh, look at the cute little ghosty. And then suddenly it brings on sort of a uh, Barbie movie style existential crisis and realization of death. No spoilers in that. Just that's the premise.
2: Do you guys ever think about dying? <laughs>
0: What I also think is interesting here is when we think about the use of totemic nostalgia by this Ghostbusters fandom that reacted so negatively to 2016 Ghostbusters, which I just learned in doing the research for this, had a subtitle that I'm pretty sure came after it was released, Hmm. Answer the Call, because I did not hear that phrase once when that movie was in theaters. Yeah, I don't remember that at all is and this is a topic for an episode specifically about that but the idea of how history is constructed and how people will have nostalgia for a history that never existed yes. uh, this often comes up with conversations about the old south
1: or the old west also yeah. which is a particular place of interest
0: right for me and these examples all refer to certain reactionary right-wing conservative ideas as any appeal to the past will typically be, and when you have to cope with the construction of said narrative when it's your nostalgia, even though you are having nostalgia for something that never existed in the way that you ideate it in the first place... I think there is always going to be repression. There's always going to be some ghost that has to come to the past and confront you.
1: That's a really good point. And I think there's a lot of interesting research on nostalgia in psychology and also in cultural criticism that I want to explore more. And I think in this case, part of the nostalgia is for... The idea that you can bust ghosts and that it's funny and comedic and Mm -hmm. sometimes it's literal, like in the case of Ghostbusters, but sometimes the idea of busting ghosts, kind of like we said earlier, can be used metaphorically as a way to get rid of things that bother you or get rid of things that are haunting you. And so I think there can be a layer of nostalgia there when it comes to trying to as i used the word before neutralize hauntings and make them fun and make light of it in order for you to create a past that is more agreeable to you and i think it's harder and harder as you get older and harder and harder in the world we live in to neutralize and ignore the past and i think that brings up a lot of anger for fans who don't want to confront that. They want it to be silly little ghosts, like "ooh, nasty slimer, ha ha, bust him," and uh, that doesn't always work for every type of haunting.
0: Right, and one means of neutralizing this kind of toxic nostalgia can be humor, taking something that has become this relic that we must worship, and really pointing out how laughable it is that people are praying at the altar of Ghostbusters. And one example of that is Neil Ciceriga, also known as Lemon Demon, whose remixes are and mashups are legendary, because he takes memes... And, and songs from the childhood of kids raised in the 90s, 2000s, and just really exposes how ridiculous some of these things were. One of the first Neil Cicerega remixes I was acquainted with was Bustin'. So, right now we're going to pause recording for a second and then we're gonna watch bustin for annabelle's first time in i don't know how long or if she's ever seen it
1: it's been many years
0: (laughs) and then do a quick quick reaction to
1: that all right okay we're back
0: (laughs) so before we started recording i said to annabelle listen I have to include this just because I know that when I edit, I will be tempted to put it every five minutes. So we just have to get it out of the way. So I can't let myself do that.
1: Perfect planning. <laughs> um, I realized I had not seen this before, but really all I have to say is I think this is just in in the way of an erasure poem. <laughs> This is revealing the underlying sentiment and message of the film Ghostbusters.
0: And what is that message?
1: You use your penis to dominate the world while your penis dominates you.
0: So in other words, Bustin makes me feel good.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> I just think super quickly. I think that what works so well in Bustin is both the way that he plays on this single innuendo in the middle of the song and really brings your attention to it. He also, in the video, sticks all of these clips of the eggs exploding, the marshmallow exploding, Dan Aykroyd's eyes crossing, all of these...
1: It's busting all the way down. Right,
0: exactly, which is anticipating somewhere that I'm unfortunately going to have to go in this episode. And also this use of, like, delayed gratification, not even delayed, denied gratification, in that you never get the chorus as you expect it. You never, mm-hmm. you get the repeated doo do 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 and you're waiting for that do 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 Never. and you never get it. He's so you just genius. have to watch
1: other other people enjoying the pleasure.
0: <laughs> oh boy, we got real psychosexual here
1: you know me <laughs> 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 all right okay. should we talk about our just general reaction to the film get that out of the way also since we, we know that that's it would be tempting to spend so long just yes. talking about how we felt about it
0: yeah so we've already alluded to it already and we're really sorry spoiler alert for what we're about to say but we didn't like it that's not to say that we're gonna trash it for hours
1: and hours. No, we have interesting things to say about this film,
0: but I just want you to be warned because maybe you have some totemic nostalgia for Ghostbusters. And I promise you it's not time to turn it off or it is. I don't know. I'm not making that decision for you.
1: Just don't leave mean comments. I guess we're going to start with my reaction. I already kind of mentioned some of these things, but just as a general reaction to the film, yes, I I didn't really like it. It was kind of honestly hard to get through for me. And here's some of the reasons why. Uh, so because of the 2016 reboot, which I have not seen, but I, I know about, I knew there was going to be some misogyny in the original Ghostbusters, Especially since there was such a push to, I guess, rebrand in the reboot with women and empowering women. Usually that kind of thing doesn't happen unless there's already content that needs to be revised. But I didn't expect that I would feel this alienated by the film. I really did not feel like I could connect... With the characters, especially the male characters, and I have no problem connecting with male characters or male people. Um, hi. Hi. <laughs> but it just felt very like an alien planet. <laughs> Interesting choice of metaphor, but to me, I, I really had this feeling like there were these three men bulldozing their way through life, busting their way through life in this nineteen eighties capitalist patriarchal hellscape that I know was, in some sense, is very real, but felt very validated, or it felt like this movie was validating that worldview. And so I felt very alienated by that. I didn't, like I said before, expect there to be so many monsters or monster-like ghosts. Nor did I think I was going to get myself into this dire, ancient, uh, apocalyptic plotline.
0: None of us ever do.
1: (laughs) Right, that's true. (laughs) I thought that the effects were really fun and silly. And I expected that and I got some of that I almost could have done with even more fun and silly yeah and I generally really like Bill Murray and yet I feel like he could not charm his way through this absolutely awful character that is Ven- Venkman
0: yeah Venkman I almost call I, him Vekman I refuse I think his first name is Peter I refuse to call him Peter you
1: can't but Bustin makes him feel good Okay, uh, my, la- my last bullet point on this slide is I hated it.
0: Yeah, so my first thought was that despite the name, there aren't a whole lot of ghosts in Ghostbusters. I was intrigued that the movie splits into two plots after Venkman visits Dana's apartment for the first time. And I thought that was interesting that her plot was the one that ends up raising the stakes and bringing about the film's climax. The plot with the EPA... Of course,
1: the woman brings about the film's climax, doing all the work all the time.
0: Oh, okay. I thought that was
1: psychosexual
0: again. I mean, it was. Okay. Go on. (laughs) The plot with the EPA regulator felt extremely unnecessary. It was conflict that only even arose between the two factions because Venkman was needlessly antagonizing Peck, the EPA regulator, Who was, at least in the first scene, being perfectly civil, doing his job, being pretty reasonable. It was, like, such bizarre writing, that specific scene. He just, like, antagonizes him for with no reason.
1: Well, I think I know what was behind that. I mean, I think you were supposed to feel an affinity for Venkman and feel, like, by him busting on this guy. And, like, he makes jokes about is dick like you know right, but
0: that's in the second scene right and the third scene with him
1: but it, that's just the, the beginning one, it escalates yeah
0: right? well the first one it really is just the EPA, as far as i can recall yeah the epa guy comes in and he's like hey who's in charge here and he's directed to Bankman, and he's like hey we need to do some tests because you guys are not following regulation and he's just like fuck you fuck you fuck you get out and like there's no build up it's just that immediately the Venkman has decided I don't like this guy, I'm not yeah. playing by his rules.
1: He has authority
0: issues. Yeah. Which I, I
1: think we as the audience, like we're we're clearly not the target audience. Yes. But if we were the target audience when it came out, I feel like we would have been like, Yeah, Renegade, Outlaw, yeah. Bigger Dick, Watch Out, Ha ha Gotcha busting makes me feel good right bigger
0: dick just makes me think of bigger luke are you aware of bigger luke there's this conspiracy theory that there are two lukes because the heights don't match up in uh gilmore girls no 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 (laughs) skywalker honey (laughs) (laughs) not not at we'll do a star wars episode eventually so Are we going to do a Gilmore Girls episode? Are there ghosts in Gilmore Girls?
1: <laughs> I don't know. Email us.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so the positives that I have to say, Sigourney Weaver was amazing. Duh. Mm-hmm. I really liked Annie Potts. Mm-hmm. I liked Harold Ramis. I thought he was the cutest of the Ghostbusters. Okay. And I thought that Dan Aykroyd's character was pretty charming. I, I, he felt the most underdeveloped, if mm-hmm. I can even say that, since then there's Zedmore, who is there for barely any of the movie. But.
1: I, I feel like Venkman is the only one who has any sort of development.
0: Yes, but at least with Egon, I knew that character pretty quickly. Like, oh, he's mm-hmm. Poindexter. Whereas, right. like, it was kind of harder to understand what. I can't remember his name right now, but Aykroyd's character was supposed to be yeah. really the others. I felt like I could kind of he's, pigeonhole them more easily.
1: The other one. Yeah.
0: And then the most important part, which is our shared reaction, I think. I have a slide titled, I fucking hate Peter Vankman, Yeah. Venkman is the worst thing about Ghostbusters. I think he is the source of all of its faults. Yep. I hate his almost Harpo Marx girl craziness, even though I love Harpo Marx. Same. I hate his Harpo Marx
1: would have been a better lead character for Ghostbusters, honestly.
0: Can you imagine a Marx Brothers ghost hunting movie? That would have been incredible.
1: Honestly, just put Harpo in place of Venkman and see how much better this film becomes
0: the misogyny sucks yep his put downs of nearly everyone around him
1: worst friend worst his, colleague
0: especially because of his failure to contribute anything to the team mm-hmm. the constant unfunny jokes shoehorned into the script which i will admit at least is like a bit more of a period thing and a bit more of just an audience thing than these other things. Definitely. But...
1: Humor I, is hard to translate across time. Although, we're both saying, oh my gosh, the Marx Brothers, so funny. And that was the 1930s. So, some, some humor doesn't hold up.
0: Yeah. And also, I think that it was more that it would be one thing... I mean, let's just keep going with the Marx Brothers. It would be one thing if it was some sort of reference or thing that was timely that no longer is funny to us. And it is another when these jokes are slowing down a plot in a movie where the plot actually is supposed to be somewhat important. It's like a Marx Brothers movie. There are jokes slowing down everything else because the movie exists to serve the jokes. Right. Ghostbusters, I felt like I was being sold a movie that was going to be something else and the jokes were slowing it down constantly.
1: That's interesting. I I don't know if I entirely agree with that but I also didn't think the jokes were funny and I think I have a general bias against that era when it comes to humor like the 80s and 90s humor just does not land for me. I think a lot of it is just I don't know it I know that we're getting into this, but I saw Ween this week. Okay. And, like, 25% of the songs are dick jokes, and I am not the right audience for that. I, I, by the way, I just want to say, I thought they killed it, and they're a great band, and I really enjoyed a lot of it. But I was just thinking about, like, that era of humor, and i feel like it's consistent with the ghostbusters style of humor it's very targeted towards white young boys and adolescents. like adolescents yeah. teenagers college humor and i just it's it's not for me
0: yeah and we're totally going to get that's so instrumental to a point i'm going to make later Really glad you brought that up right now.
1: If you're wondering what I'm talking about with Ween, by the way, just listen to the song Piss Up a Rope. (laughs) Quest's face says it all, but you can't see it. Or don't. Yeah, or don't. Or don't.
0: Venkman spends so much of the movie antagonizing everyone around him, even his friends and his accomplices. I don't think this is an overly contemporary point of view, Mm -hmm. but I was really expecting that him being such a dick was going to be part of the plot. I'm used to that kind of plot where you have like one character who's so self-assured and sure that they're right and that they're the protagonist that then eventually everyone is like, ah, fuck you. We don't want to be on your team anymore. Mm -hmm. And then he has a dark night of the soul, the 11th hour, and then he does a heel turn and shapes up and then everybody reunites and they battle the evil at the end.
1: Oh my gosh. I thought the same thing, especially because his introduction in the film is him doing research where he is lying about the outcome of the research in order to get in this girl's pants and to punish the man who is a part of the research. Who isn't unnecessarily. doing Unnecessarily. Yeah, he's just like giving him electric shocks for the heck of it. And so I saw that and I thought, oh, we're supposed to think this guy is a dick and we're... Maybe we're going to because he's Bill Murray, you know, and we, we have,
0: don't worry. Don't
1: worry, Bill, Bill Murray. Murray, and and you know we're gonna start to feel for him and see his arc of becoming less of a dick. But really, no, no. What happens is he just convinces the woman in the movie that he is worth dating, yeah, without changing at all.
0: Yeah. Do you want a spoiler? For Ghostbusters 2? Sure. Ghostbusters 2, she is married to somebody else. She dated Vankman for a while and they are not together. Oh, that's good. Yeah. You go, Dana.
1: That's a relief.
0: I mean, that's what I got from the synopses, but I read them pretty thoroughly. (sighs) So, my distaste for Vankman was so strong.
2: It, it, the, it, flame, flames, flames on the side of my face
0: that it actually really wound up shaping my research.
1: So let's get into that. Um, I need a cushion. Oh my God, I forgot to get your butt a cushion. So let's get into that. And this, by the way, as you probably saw in the title, is a two-part episode. And in this first part, we're going to dive into feminist theory, partially in response to our initial reactions to the film and in part two we'll get into everything else although I think it all kind of gets intertwined we're probably gonna
0: yes everything happens all at once you just have to pick your strand apart and decide that's the strand you're looking at right then you know yeah what I thought was really interesting and it is so funny me spearheading this feminist angle in the research Was when you mentioned how alienated you felt watching this, I didn't even consider that idea Mm. of like what a woman or non-male viewer might experience watching this. So that also just shows, you know, my own blind spots.
1: Yeah, it definitely felt like I was in a boys club and I was not being included.
0: Yeah. That's interesting. And what a movie.
1: (laughs) It also made me really confused about a lot of Dana's choices because I felt a lot of visceral feelings about Venkman's actions and just like having this strange man in your apartment who won't leave until you give him a date And all these things just felt so icky to me that I was spending a lot of the movie going, Dana, no. I know. Don't invite this man back to your house. Get away
2: from her, you bitch.
1: That's one of the
0: strongest things about Sigourney Weaver's performance is that I could criticize that as a writing decision, but it didn't necessarily feel so out of the blue because I did feel like she just kind of sold it.
1: It doesn't feel unbelievable. She she really does sell that, and
0: and she does have a problem. Yeah, that she needs
1: addressed. There's something strange
0: in not her only, neighborhood. Not only in her
1: neighborhood, but in her refrigerator. And I get the desperation <laughs> that comes with that. But also, like she's kind of flirtatious with a guy in a symphony. Yeah, he's probably really boring. And really bad in bed. But couldn't be worse than Bill Murray. I I don't don't think so. Anyway.
0: So. (laughs) The research. The research. We're going to start with The Monstrous Feminine and Imaginary Objection by Barbara Creed, which draws on the work of Julia Kristeva. If you recall, episode zero, we talked about abjection, which is Kristeva's crown in her. Nope jewel in her crown (laughs) it's it's her major contribution to the academic landscape the monstrous feminine refers to the monsterization of womanhood typically biological big air quotes there womanhood as opposed to feminine gender roles i mean that specifically in creed's essay the monstrous feminine is a term that she seems to originate But I'm sure that you can find people who apply it to feminine gender roles instead of specifically, quote, the female body. I am not going to rest upon using quotes there. Just understand that some of this, all of this language is pretty cis-normative. And unfortunately, that is the state of a lot of this research.
1: That being said, I think there is some importance to talking about biology when we talk about the fear and haunting that comes with the monstrous feminine. So in some ways that still holds up because we have to talk about genitalia and the uh, biological experience of having various parts, but it's still very Freudian and comes from a perspective of mostly biological essentialism it's kind of new to write about gender in the way that we understand it now Uh, so i hope that there are people doing this work
0: yeah so nearly any female monster or monstrous woman can be read as the monstrous feminine in our culture there is the assumption of male as default due to the patriarchal society in which we live so as soon as a monster is marked as feminine her femininity is part of what makes her monstrous the first thing ray says upon seeing gozer is it's a girl
1: as if that is the most notable thing about notable her. and shocking thing about the situation <laughs>
0: And it kind of is, in a way, because we're going to see how Ghostbusters is a lot about gender. Common incarnations of the monstrous feminine might monsterize puberty and menstruation, as seen in Carrie, The Exorcist, Ginger Snaps. They might monsterize sexuality, as in Jennifer's body and teeth. They might monsterize pregnancy and birth, as seen in Alien, or they might monsterize motherhood.
1: And that's also why I say that biological sex is also important in this discussion. And th- there's some equivocation about gender and sex in this writing. But I think we can see the distinction where, you know, pregnancy and birth, we now understand to be a, an issue of assigned sex rather than assigned gender And that is part of the monstrosity and the the fear. Same with menstruation. But then there's also qualities we associate with femininity that are not about the body that are monstrous. And so there's a distinction that we can make there, but we can see that it's both gender and sex that are drawn upon to create the monstrous feminine or the monstrous female
0: Yes. I would just argue that with a more nuanced look at certain horror movies with women at the center of them, you find that there is a monstrousness in the gender role that women inhabit, or horror that can really revolve around aspects of womanhood that are more culturally constructed than... The biological elements, for example, even in Ghostbusters, there is the fact that Dana is a single woman living alone, Mm -hmm. and the stigma there is not as much a biological one as it is a social one.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: So, one example that we can consider in the monstrous feminine in Ghostbusters, which I think also does actually ride both of those lines, is the library ghost at the beginning, At the beginning of the movie, we talked about how Venkman is testing these two subjects for ESP, using those ESP cards. And then Ray and Egon come in and we get our first call, though they are not yet Ghostbusters, of a paranormal phenomenon for them to look into. And that is at this library. At
1: this point, they're researchers. Yeah. So they're excited because they get to come in and see what's going on and test their equipment and do all of that kind of stuff.
0: Right. And by they being excited, we mean specifically Egon and Ray, because Venkman is a skeptic right now for whatever reason. Right. And when we finally get to the ghost, we see all of the spectral silliness at the library we see books moving and we see ectoplasm and it is this old woman reading a book and then when they confront her she turns into a big gorilla monster.
2: I know exactly what to do. Now stay close. Stay close. I know. Do exactly as I say. Get ready. 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 Get her!
1: Mm-hmm. Something that was strange to me Is that although Vankman is supposed to be A skeptic He is really unsurprised About the fact that there are ghosts So I guess he's a classic skeptic In that he maintains A total skepticism On both sides Yeah
0: an open mind to some degree
1: Yeah but It's interesting, it's only when they start to threaten this ghost that she becomes monstrous. She's rather benign and, or even just neutral Right in the beginning.
0: Turning back to gender, what is interesting here is that it is this elderly woman who appears conventional and then becomes just unrecognizable. She really does. We're looking at an effects photo as well as a still from the film. Her face looks very gorilla-like.
1: Yeah, with exaggerated teeth and skin that is more like a decaying corpse than like a gorilla, wispy hair.
0: Yeah, her hair was in a neat bun and then it falls down and starts floating around her when she assumes this more monstrous shape. Her dress is now in tatters.
1: And on a more psychological level, what's interesting to me about this ghost is that her mild appearance, her appearance as an older woman, I think is supposed to create an expectation that she doesn't have much power and that she doesn't pose a threat yes and so the thing that is supposed to make this scary is that it it kind of relies on our stereotypes about older women which is that they're non-threatening that they won't make a fuss and that they're not a problem because we can dominate them as men as younger people i talk to a lot of older women in my life all the time about how people anticipate that they are going to be compliant and stupid, which is so, it's so absurd considering the fact that older women have so much life experience. They have been running shit all their lives, most likely. It's a really sexist and ageist stereotype, but she fulfills this for sure. She's this neat older woman who's just reading a book and then snaps and becomes threatening and frightening to this group of three young, youngish men.
0: And when she does that, her gender becomes unsettled. One thing that I was thinking about was the intersection between age and gender. Mm -hmm. I recently read a quote from Kate Bornstein, who is incredible. And who is both trans and non-binary. And by that I mean that they have experienced gender affirmation surgery. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about how as they've gotten older and older, they've become more and more androgynous. Mm -hmm. And that we do kind of de-sex the elderly. Yes. So the idea that this elderly character who is very marked feminine when we first see her. Also, it's notable that her color is purple. Mm
2: -hmm. Which
0: is typically considered a feminine color then becomes monstrous and so she becomes more androgynous and more inhuman. Yeah. Which it makes me think of the Psycho Bitty a lot. Are you not familiar? I'm not familiar. Psycho Bitty, the best example is whatever happened to Baby Jane, the crazy elderly woman, especially Uh, in a psychodrama or psychological horror. The threat of the older woman. We're afraid of them. We're afraid of aging. We're afraid of death. We're afraid that we're going to look like this. We're afraid that we're going to be de-sexed one day. Lose power. Yeah. But we're afraid that we're going to lose power and yet she becomes more powerful. But we also don't see any resolution for like they don't catch her.
1: I really thought that this is going to be the beginning of an extended plot and it's really just kind of a jump scare to get the crowd going to whet the appetite
0: to introduce you to the concept for the rest of the movie or to introduce you to the concept of the monstrous
2: feminine Mm
0: -hmm. and concerning the incident at the library Venkman interviews an employee of the library and what do we have to focus on but hysteria
1: I don't remember seeing any legs, but it definitely had arms because
2: it reached out for me.
0: Arms? I can't wait to get a look at this thing.
2: Alice, I'm going to ask you a couple of standard questions, okay? Have you or any member of your family ever been diagnosed schizophrenic, mentally incompetent? My uncle thought he was St. Jerome. I'd call that a big yes.
0: Uh, Are you habitually using drugs, stimulants,
2: alcohol? No. No, no. Just asking. Are you, Alice, menstruating right now? What has that got to do with it? Back off, man. I'm a scientist.
1: And it should be noted that this is another older woman.
0: So we have to question her mental health and her mental competency, both in her family history and in plausible drug use. And then what do we have to ask her...
1: Are you on your period? I hate him so much. I hate yeah. him so much. I shouldn't even say it like that. That's like that's using the valley girl voice in vain. <laughs> um He's like, "Oh, well, are you, are you menstruating?
0: Are you on the rag?" Are you on
1: the rag? Are you like reliable right now? Back off, man. I'm a scientist.
0: Again, we are talking about bodily functions and specifically gendered bodily functions so at the core of the monstrous feminine according to creed is the idea of the archaic mother and the archaic mother is very lacanian and freudian and i'm sure i've gotten into my contempt for those two in this podcast before but they are also useful and inescapable when you're looking at horror theory What Creed says is.
1: What is most interesting about the mythological figure of woman as the source of all life, a role taken over by the male god of monotheistic religions, is that within patriarchal signifying practices, particularly the horror film, she is reconstructed and represented as a negative figure, one associated with the dread of the generative mother, seen only as the abyss, the monstrous vagina, the origin of all life, threatening to reabsorb what it once birthed.
0: What she means is essentially that the function of woman is to give birth, and by monsterizing woman, by creating a female monster that is now threatening death, we are inverting her function, That instead of giving life, she is now taking life. And on an archetypal level, we're talking specifically about the Mother Goddess, which is very prevalent in nearly all world religions, if not all. And kind of this idea that Christian cultures are taking the Mother Goddess, and they're repressing it and afraid of it, and inverting it into this Death Goddess as a means of upholding patriarchal supremacy.
1: Right. Reminding us that the mother is a threat. Don't you ever raise your voice at me! I am your mother! I brought you into this world. I can take you out of it. I have that on another slide. (laughs) Oh. Well, I'm just quoting my own mother.
0: (laughs) What is also particularly crazy to me is that in the Ghostbusters canon now I was looking on wiki sources and it had been a, a couple weeks after I had watched the movie but I'm pretty sure that this is from things after the original movie which I wouldn't normally bring in but in the Ghostbusters canon Gozer the Gozarian or Gozer the Destroyer was worshiped by the Hittites, Mesopotamians and Sumerians in 6000 BCE before Tiamat banished her. In Mesopotamian mythology, Tiamat is a primeval ocean deity, often understood to be a dragon-like creature. She is a force of creation and of destruction. She gives birth to all of the gods, then the gods murder their father, who is her lover, and instead she mothers a legion of monstrous offspring to wage war against them, which also seems to be parthenogenic. She seems to be creating these children without any Male influence. Mm -hmm. So then the gods have war against the monster children. They emerge victorious against the monsters, kill Tiamat, and then use her corpse to create the universe in which we now live. So you can see the ways that birth and death are united in one figure here. First she gives birth to everybody. Then she gives birth to monsters, which are going to threaten death. And then they kill her, but in killing her, use her body for more creation. So we see that birth and death are two sides of the same coin in this Mesopotamian archaic mother figure, who I bring up because A, she's brought up in Ghostbusters lore, and B, I think that there's maybe a little bit of inspiration here in Mm -hmm. Gozer.
1: Yeah, and it should be noted that while this birth-death- Connection seems pretty integral to a lot of ancient cosmologies. Ghostbusters is very much about squashing that, right? Busting it. I am going to just keep using that <laughs> that phrase because it's what it's about, right? The contemporary culture banishing the dualistic worldview of life and death. It's it's banishing, really. It's banishing death it's It's the idea that we don't have to think about the afterlife. we can control it and we can harness it at least that's how I see it,
0: yeah, and a means of repressing it, right. putting it away in a box. This is bad, we hate it, we defeat it. Don't think about it,
1: right, using tons of energy and technology to contain the force,
0: yeah. So, in Ghostbusters, let's talk about some symbolism.
1: So, the Gozer plot begins with Dana's eggs.
0: Birth symbol.
1: Right. Erupting on her counter. And can I just say, in case you haven't seen it, we're not talking about Dana's eggs, even though we kind of, wink, are talking about Dana's eggs. Chicken (laughs) eggs. These are chicken eggs. Her groceries. Her grocery eggs. they, They bubble, explode. On the counter. She opens her fridge.
0: Which is a domestic symbol.
1: To find a portal.
0: Yonic symbol.
1: And in that portal is a set of doors.
0: Yonic symbol.
1: We then see a close-up shot of a toothy mouth, silhouetted, but lit from within.
0: Vagina dentata. Really quickly, I will say, obviously, sometimes a cigar is a cigar. The eggs were probably chosen... Not for birth imagery, but probably because they figured out how to do this cool effect. And it is a really cool effect. But also, once you present a text, it is to be analyzed.
1: A cigar is a cigar, but a portal is always a vagina.
0: <laughs> yes. Also, yonic. if you are not familiar, uh, yonic is the counterpart to phallic, meaning resembling a vagina. Or vulva. Right.
1: Are you talking about my vagina? Maybe. The possession of Dana and Lewis bears striking similarity to a werewolf movie. Each is attacked by a canine monster, and then they are transformed, no longer themselves. When the binary between man and beast is blurred, it often represents the unbridled id.
0: And we see that in... The first interaction between Dana Azul and Venkman, which is very seductive, where up until now, she's been very closed off. She's not going to have a relationship with him. She's not going to have sex with him. Right. And now it's this, come on.
1: Which is the true moment of horror in this film for me, and probably a lot of other women. And
0: yet... It also subverts your expectations, because he's like, nah, I'm not going to do this.
1: I know. Rather surprised. Shocking.
0: No points for you, Venkman, but you did surprise me. Agreed. And then, how about the fact that Zool is the gatekeeper, and Vince Clortho is the key master?
1: That is the most BDSM shit I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) But also, Yonic and Phallic, right? Like, the key... Yeah. The lock. And then Ayo. they
0: they meet on top of the skyscraper.
1: Penis. Oh, sorry. Phallic symbol. And they work in
0: tandem to open the temple doors. Yonic symbol. And then they reveal the portal. Yonic symbol. The Ghostbusters peer into the portal to confront Gozer. I'll explain that in a second. Okay. And... Intent on destroying her adversaries and the world, Gozer enters from the portal into our world. Birth. So, there is this idea that was coming up in Creed's paper that the primal scene Mm -hmm. from Freud, which is when the child either witnesses or imagines witnessing the parents having sex, is specifically representing, I'm going to do such a bad job at exa- explaining this and that's okay. Cause I think it's bullshit. Mm-hmm. The child fantasy of witnessing the parents having sex while the child is in the womb, like witnessing their own creation. Oh, and, and Freud gets freaky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so you can see that idea when the Ghostbusters peer into this portal. They're really in between New York and this other dimension where Gozer is living. Mm -hmm. They're inside this vagina watching her about to come out. But there's also this idea tying the primal scene with Medusa and Freud uses Medusa as an allegory for castration anxiety I don't even want to get into castration anxiety. It's exactly what it sounds like. But the idea that looking at the vulva conjures the fear of castration. And so you don't look at it like you don't look at Medusa. Again, super Mm. boiled down. If you're really a Freudian, I know I'm totally bungling a lot of this. And the idea that by looking into the primal scene, you will be condemned. That these are kind of also two sides of the same coin that looking onto the scene of birth is also creating one's own death. And so by looking into the portal and watching Gozer come out, the Ghostbusters find themselves in this apocalyptic life or death battle.
1: This also makes me think because this is an apocalyptic situation and Gozer is supposed to bring on the end of the world. That it seems to be the reason that she was conjured in the first place. It makes me think of biblical language, like the beast slouching towards Bethlehem waiting to be born.
0: The whore of Babylon.
1: Exactly. Which I'm going to talk about in the next episode briefly because of Aleister Crowley. But I certainly see a parallel here when it comes to seeing the threatening feminine goddess as something that is birthed into the world and the fear of creation in that sense with biblical stories and maybe more ancient mythology.
0: Right. And also, if we're going to talk about the horror of Babylon, which the fact that this is a Near Eastern deity, mm-hmm. we will get into that soon as well, or in part two, but it is worth considering the idea that the whore of Babylon is typically originating from a woman who was owning her own sexuality. Mm -hmm. So once again, anything that you can do as a woman is just going to get lumped all together and turned into a reason that you're monstrous. And why are you monstrous? Because you aren't a man.
1: You, You own your sexuality, which then turns you into a host for dangerous ancient deities that will bring on the destruction of the earth and all life as we know it. Look, the apocalypse! Someone got hit in the boing lines! Hit in the boing lines! Boing lines!
2: Boing lines! Somebody got hit in them!
0: In ideating Gozer as the archaic mother, it's worth remembering the point that I made earlier with Tiamat that she seems to create these monstrous children on her own. That's a big part of what Creed is arguing here, that the archaic mother is mother goddess impregnating herself. And so that's also threatening a man's place in the whole structure of sex and gender.
1: Right. For a movie that is all about how Bustin makes me feel good, that is has to be the ultimate threat that maybe Dana doesn't need Vankman what? How could you say that that maybe they're just busting for no reason yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and to make matters even worse for the men in this movie, the ghosts and ghostbusters don't really bear any resemblance or bear very little resemblance to. Dearly departed ghosts of human beings, other than maybe the first ghost that we discussed, but she even turns into a monster. And most of these ghosts are very monster like, as we've said several times, which makes it even more possible that they're extra dimensional invaders birthed from the metaphoric vagina of Gozer.
0: Especially when you think about. The original script, which was about going to different planets and dimensions and whatever, so
1: right. It's it's like it's like death isn't even the threat. Uh, we've we've taken that e- completely off the table and repressed that. It's actually these monsters that don't even belong to Earth. They belong to some other dimension, and so it's even more okay that we're trying to collect and exterminate them
0: yeah and when i think about this in comparison with the tiamat myth which i know i am bringing into this equation it's not baked into the movie
1: it's nice though because it's clear that there's some sort of vague reference to goddesses of a certain place and era but it's not necessarily clear where they are taking inspiration it's sort of like When people bring up the uh, oh, it's it's a Native American burial ground, right? It's like okay, well,
2: which nation? What
1: nation? What are like? What are we talking about here? It's like some sort of vague, made-up impression of what that was. So it's nice to have a. a, That's a, a long way of saying it's very nice to have a concrete example to point to.
0: And it is a concrete example of Creeds theory, which I do think is related here. So, I think of the ghosts, which are also connected to this portal, as being the spawn of Gozer. They're entering from her monstrous metaphoric birth canal, but also in this weird mixed metaphor of her giving birth and also being given birth to, Mm -hmm. they're her children, but they're also coming before her. They're like the sign that she's coming,
1: Mm. Kind of like if you see a baby bear, you and you know, know Mama's Mama coming. Bear is coming. Yeah. Mama's coming.
0: Yeah. Another. I brought this up back in our episode where we talked about objection, and this is one of those things that I have a lot of trouble wrapping my head around. But I think this is the time when it actually makes more sense. Kristeva, in her theories of objection, she discusses return to the womb as a form of death. And that, like, everybody wants to go back to the womb, mm-hmm. but in so doing, you experience ego death because what comes before being in the womb, not existing yet. And it's interesting, as I've pointed out, that at this climax, the Ghostbusters stand in this yonic portal facing off with her. And as you said before, it's the epitome of I brought you into this world. And I can take you out of it. Mm-hmm. She is both mother and destroyer.
1: Well, it's not that hard to wrap your head around if you look at it as a earthly, natural process. Uh, I think of Friar Lawrence in Romeo and Juliet giving his whole long speech about how a flower can have both poison and healing power and talking about what comes out of the earth and i think there's that dualistic nature to soil and to as we've said before birth and death and that a lot of goddesses represent that dichotomy that that lives so so easily together
0: (laughs) yes it's more it makes sense to me conceptually metaphorically Mm
2: -hmm.
0: it's when they describe it as a psychological truth of Uh. all people that everyone secretly underneath everything desires anything to begin with but to go back to the womb and then they will just and this is just the problem with psychoanalysis as a form of like as a lens Mm -hmm. to begin with that you can't say anything is true for all people period And also, as soon as you find any counterexample, they will find a way to read into it whatever they want it to say.
1: Yeah, that can be frustrating. That being said, I think that almost everybody desires the comfort and safety of being carried in a womb. Whether they want to actually, on a psychological level, go back. I think think it's almost easier to to grok if you think of it as a metaphor for desiring care and 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 safety and and love, you know?
0: I think that does make a lot more sense. Yes.
1: Not that I think every writer who has covered this is looking at it that way, but that's that's right. how I see it and make sense of it. Yeah.
0: And what was also brought to mind here as we talk about the climax of the movie is this quote from Gramsci the old world is dying and the new world struggles to be born now is the time of monsters (laughs) it's obviously maybe too facile an interpretation of that but the idea that this whole scene revolves around the the monstrousness of this kind of liminal state we have the status quo battling against this apocalypse Yeah, and as we find ourselves between the two possibilities that's when monsters slip into our realm
1: women are becoming more financially independent in the 1980s this is a a, a post-hormonal contraceptive era it's women coming into the workplace and a lot of as we'll talk about later a lot of this film is about work and capitalism and starting a business so one could argue that this whole apocalyptic situation is representative of the anxieties that of sisters
0: men. are doing it for themselves right
1: exactly. <laughs> and
0: let's just bring one more heavy hitter because Barbara Creed is like very big. This is my niche really is a horror analysis as it pertains to gender. My specific research interest is typically queerness and horror. Big surprise, I know. <laughs> but that is very close knit with feminist analyses of horror. And I've read a lot of them, and I have a lot of problems with them. And you can't talk about feminist analysis of horror without getting into Men, Women, and Chainsaws by Carol Clover.
1: Of course.
0: She is the person who invented the term Final Girl.
1: I actually, I'm not familiar. I mean, I I have some knowledge of this, but I have not done a lot of research when it comes to feminism and horror. So kind of both separately, (laughs) but not together. So tell me about it, (laughs) Stud.
0: What most people think of when they do think of Carol Clover, if they think of Carol Clover, is her essay that really discusses the final girl and slasher films. This is a different essay in that same book called Opening Up, which is all about possession films, Mm. because... I was thinking about it, and I was like, boy, Ghostbusters is a possession film, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it is. So, At least the second half of it is.
0: Yeah. So, most of the time, possession films focus on the possession of a woman, which Clover connects to ideas of, wouldn't you guess it, penetration, wombs, menstruation, birth, and sex organs. She also describes the possession film as a dual-focus film, with one focus being the possessed woman and the other being a man in crisis. Oh, wow. And the exorcist is the perfect example of this. You have Regan with her whole possession thing.
2: Keep away! The soul is mine!
0: And that becomes an instrument through which Karras can experience his crisis of faith. And if you need even more theoretical ground there... The true story that The Exorcist was based on is about a possessed boy. Mm. And it's really interesting that to popularize that story in both fiction and film, it was changed to be a pubescent girl.
1: That is very interesting. So it seems like the possessed female is used... ...as a device for the man to grow or face the big questions in the world. And Clover writes... ...the quandary of the rational male faced with the satanic or its equivalents is a simple one. Should he cling to his rational scientific understanding of human behavior... ...or should he yield to the irrational? So it seems to me like the possessed woman is used as a symbol for the irrational, for the hysterical. And that is a much more familiar archetype, at least in Western media and storytelling, than if it were to be a possessed boy or a possessed man. And so it seems like there's something there's something gendered going on here. <laughs> clearly but it it seems like that is the role that she has to play in order for him to have his story arc his growth
0: yes and it's also that she serves as continuing this metaphor the door into a new mode of story that this is kind of
1: yonic yeah she's a door
0: how we're entering into a specific story mode Because Mm -hmm. Clover also locates another central conflict in Possession films, another dichotomy between white science and black magic. Again, in The Exorcist, we see the initial attempts to explain and cure Reagan's behavior through medical science before resorting to alternative measures.
1: So... Clover also writes, the drama of these films thus turns on the process of conversion, the shedding of disbelief, the acceptance of the mystical or the irrational. So these films become a story about, and this is my idea, not Clover's, but these films become a story about women being the threshold to the irrational or supernatural, and holding that sort of power. But it's also horrifying and scary, and the men typically reluctantly take part in that, and oftentimes try to squash it, as happens in Ghostbusters.
0: Yeah, and I'll get into it in a second, but Ghostbusters does not follow a lot of her schema, but... It is interesting how in most of these possession movies we start in a realistic world with realistic problems and this bizarre thing happens. So people resort to the channels that they already know which are going to be white science until it is proven that that's not going to work and they give in to black magic. And she considers those things gendered as well, that we have the rational science, which is masculine, and the occult, which is feminine.
1: I just want to comment that I think of it in some ways as more white science to white magic, because so much of the time, and this is my own distinction, maybe from my background in occultism but I tend to think of white magic as magic that works with energies like angels and like capital G God and order and I feel like a lot of the time in these films there's an exorcism there's a priest who's brought in to fix things and everything is fixed with what I think of as a very gendered type of banishing or magic that is very christian in worldview and so it it, to me that is gendered masculine and so i see it more as white magic and black magic being more of the earth or what we might in a derogatory way call the mundane but really is integral um, and more gendered feminine that's that's Maybe just language distinction.
0: One thing is that she is pulling these terms from a specific movie. I had it in my notes, but I uh, didn't put it in the slides. That makes a lot of sense. Also, I think black magic in opposition to white magic here would be that we are resorting to not wasp religion. We uh-huh. are instead going into Catholicism, we're going into Santeria, we're going into Vodun. Oh. See, which I have, also then is racialized,
1: hence black. Right. That's interesting. Sometimes I forget, as someone who was not raised in a Christian household, that even Catholicism is considered... Alternative. Alternative. Yeah, exactly. Because to me, that is still very much establishment viewpoints when it comes to magic. And I think it is now. But I think... I was thinking even further into, like, African folk magic or... Which I know has blended with Catholicism and Christianity. So anyway, it's, 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 I think in some ways it's an important distinction, but in other ways it really is just language.
0: Yeah. And so this distinction also comes up in the writings of Timothy Tangerlini, who was quoted in something else I was reading, full disclosure. And he notes a pair of opposing forces in folklore about ghost banishing, Similar to the white science-black magic dichotomy. Narratives where the ghost is banished through official channels, the church, or through unofficial channels. Like a folk healer, that a was, wise woman. I guess
1: that was the, the distinction that I was making there. Yeah.
0: And what was really crazy... So there was this article I was thinking I was going to read, but it was going to be so jargonistic and outside anything useful. And if you know me from this podcast, I have a tendency to over-research.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But... Which it, we,
1: we love you for it. <laughs> thank you. And we worry about you.
0: <laughs> and it was using Ghostbusters to analyze environmental protection law. Wow. And one thing that I did get into in the little bit that I did read was a discussion of the conflict between the Ghostbusters and the EPA. And that when official channels refuse to take care of a problem, then you get vigilante versions Of taking care of that problem. Huh. And so once again, you find even in this environmental law analysis, this dichotomy between official channels and unofficial channels.
1: That's interesting.
0: And that's really central. All these things are going to come together to form such a sweet, juicy nugget. I'm so excited to get there. (laughs) So... Even though the Ghostbusters arguably represent a scientific methodology, they are clearly an unofficial channel, thus black magic, in opposition to the white science of the EPA. The male crisis, or the crisis of faith, isn't located in any one character, but instead in the city of New York. (laughs) has to decide how they're going to take care of this problem, realized through the scene where both Peck and the Ghostbusters have to argue with the mayor about how he's going to take care of this problem and try to get him on their side.
1: That's really interesting because just to complicate this a little bit with some ecofeminism, I see the Ghostbusters... Well, I see them the way that you've outlined... Here, where they are vigilante justice in terms of the environmental problem that is the ghosts, right? And the apocalypse. (laughs) But it's interesting to me that they are also attempting to capture this evidence of uncertainty that likely spawned from things associated with the feminine, as we've discussed. Because to me, that is the way that we have tried as a society to subdue nature using technology in order to control, to command, to own nature. And so I just think it's so interesting that the EPA becomes an enemy. And I mean, it's interesting already that the EPA is an organization that is very much a part of institutionalized, that is very much an institution, and I think coded masculine because of the way our culture is. I don't really have a, a conclusion there other than the fact that there is some tension between Ghostbusters being... Vigilante justice for the environment and Ghostbusters being representative of the way we have tried to colonize feminine aspects of Mother Earth.
0: Yes. So this tension between this way that Clover ideates the possession film as and I'll I have some better examples of this that we haven't yet gotten to. But that the possession film opens us up to new possibilities mm-hmm. that's why we look into black magic mm-hmm. and it restructures the world as we entered it at the beginning for the better and Ghostbusters does not follow it very ah. well, and that oh uh, you're 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 speaking my language, <laughs> good. So what she specifically argues is that the dual focus of possession films serves to redraw the boundaries of gender roles.
1: Oh my gosh, Ghostbusters serves to reinforce the boundaries of gender roles, in my opinion.
0: So regarding these gender roles in possession and how they are historic, Clover says...
1: This male outburst of the possessed person is one of the complex's most archaic features. From biblical times on, the invading devil, or Dybbuk, has been construed as a male being, and the possessed woman as hence subject to masculinization from the inside out. At first glance, the story seems an object lesson on what happens to the woman who drifts out of the orbit of male control. A reading supported by the fact that it sometimes requires an act of male agency to bring her back to, quote-unquote, normal.
0: And so, while I wouldn't argue that Dana is masculinized, I would argue that she steps outside of the gender role that we have seen her occupying. Mm -hmm. If we... If we think of the gender role where women are supposed to not be into sex and they're supposed to withhold their sex from you until you're married and blah, blah, blah. She does that. And then that gets flipped and she becomes a sexual aggressor once she is possessed, for one.
1: She also goes from needing the help of the men to deal with her problem to (laughs) becoming the problem itself and, and having a lot of, I mean... I was going to say having agency, although she is possessed, so it's not really her. But, but the character ends up becoming aggressive and independent in ways that she wasn't before her possession.
0: Yes, exactly. So according to Clover's Schema, the possessed woman is violent, grotesque, and masculinized. Again, think Reagan. So that the man may return from his crisis sensitive and emotionally healthy, i.e., toxic masculinity is expelled in the process of exorcism. Quote, But let us look a little more closely at the split on which the story of male revision is predicated, the split between bad, old masculinity on one hand and new, good masculinity on the other. If he, and she's referring to Rambo here were to wander into an occult film, he would end up reformed, a kinder, gentler man, at least able to marry and communicate open-heartedly with his wife, children, parents, and neighbors. So what we do in the possession film is the woman acts out of her gender role so that the man can act outside of his. And where a woman acting outside of her gender role is to be explosive and grotesque and ugly and powerful for a man to act outside of his gender role is to be emotionally healthy.
1: Right. It's, it's a sign of personal growth.
0: Yeah. So she says that we break these categories apart so that we can redraw them in a more progressive shape. Now, obviously, many of us would say that redrawing the gender roles to begin with isn't good, but... That's a little bit too queer I, I, for Clover. Yeah. <laughs> so here's a question for you. Does Venkman ever have a crisis of faith? Like Karis does or anyone, any male in the Archetypal Possession movie?
1: I would say no.
0: I would agree.
1: I I don't think he grows at no, all. No! I think he stays completely static. And...
0: If we think about this idea that the man has to go in one direction to the white science and then switch to the black magic, he never has any beliefs to begin with. We never know whether he's a skeptic or not.
1: It's really unclear. As we were saying earlier, he acts like he doesn't believe in any of this stuff, but then is completely unsurprised when he sees the ghost. He doesn't need convincing. Right. It seems like it's a non-issue for him. What he's more interested in is growing his business and getting laid. Yeah. Which we will talk about extensively in part two.
0: And so I think it's also important to talk about the fact that most of the notable monsters in Ghostbusters
1: are Are, women. Yeah. Or coded feminine. Yeah. I'm thinking of the blowjob ghost scene. I
0: hate the blowjob ghost scene. You can only, I mean,
1: you can't. Maybe in today's world, you could not make assumptions about the gender of that ghost, but you know that in 1984, the people writing this movie, the men writing this movie, thought that was a female ghost. And when
0: I was reading, I believe that that was going to be like a recurring plot line instead of being a. Really quick moment in a nothing montage. Nothing
1: is a recurring plot line yeah. in this movie. Nothing, nothing comes back. Nothing is resolved. At least with the ghosts.
0: If Dana wasn't played by Sigourney Weaver, you know that they would have just lost that.
1: Yep. Yep. So, coming back to the totemic nostalgia of Ghostbusters and talking about gender... Most of the people who think of themselves as fanatics for the original Ghostbusters franchise are men and were either adolescents or boys when they first saw this film. And so let's talk a little bit about masculinity as well.
0: I would even go so far as to say, go so far, it's pretty obvious, the intended demographic. Is a male demographic, which when we think about blockbuster movies, if it's marketed toward men, women will see it. The inverse, historically, has not been as true.
1: Right, right.
0: So Clover's talking about possession movies and she's saying we're going to break apart gender roles Mm -hmm. so we can make them anew and make them better. So that way the man has exercised toxic masculinity Mm -hmm. in ghostbusters because we lack that emotional growth in our men instead we are just choosing between two kinds of toxic masculinity it's really important to remember that in that scene in the mayor's office venkman and peck come to blows
1: Mm -hmm. yeah so i'm not (laughs) not those kinds of blows
0: (laughs) They can't keep it in their pants. No, it has to always be a dick measuring contest between the two of them.
1: Can I just, like, make a side note comment that we've only alluded to about crossing streams?
0: Yeah. Hello. Hi. uh,
1: Literally, the technology in this film is... (laughs) It's fallacized. It's fallacized. It's... They tell each other not to cross streams of the ghost-busting right. devices that I can't remember the name of come at me. It's, anyway. you know, it's a pee joke.
0: Yeah, it absolutely is. And I felt like that was too obvious to even worry about here, but I you're know, completely but, right. But if
1: we're going to talk about masculinity and the demographic, like blowjob joke, pee joke, hitting on women jokes scary old lady jokes like this is what we are this is the world in which ghostbusters exists right
0: it's bottom of the barrel it's lowest common denominator so i think as i've been trying to break down venkman and understand him that his defining character trait is his need for intellectual superiority He puts down anyone he considers an obstacle at that particular moment in time to whatever he wants right then. Mm
1: -hmm. He's a bully.
0: Yeah. He lacks Egon's poindextrishness because Egon makes these things. He knows how all of these things work. He lacks Ray's enthusiasm. I'm not even going to get into Zedmore because he's mostly in this because he needs a job. Mm -hmm. He's the worst kind of toxic geek. He just needs to be better than you.
1: Right. He's a well, actually. Yes. Guy. Yes. And so
0: what we have is Peck representing official masculinity, where he's got the nice government job. He wears his suit and tie. Mm-hmm. He's establishment. And then we have Vankman, who's pulled himself up by his bootstraps. He got fired. And let's talk about, not really, but let's talk about how bad he was at his job Mm -hmm. before he got fired and made a business. He kind of pushed everyone down. Ray Ray takes out a fucking second mortgage. Mm -hmm. He can't do it. Ray has to. Right. He is that geek whose entire personality is not caring about the thing. It's not being smart. It's needing to be better than you. Because he sees himself as having been pushed down.
1: I mean, it's really just the typical outlaw cowboy story. Oh, well, well, Superimposed onto someone who is in an unrespected field in academia, which makes him a geek. Right, He's obsessed with this thing that nobody wants to fund, nobody seems to care about, and so there's some insecurity there, but you get that same kind of I'm going to use the word macho again, but macho, Machismo. machismo, outlaw, cowboy story, but in the form of a ghostbuster.
0: Yeah. And so at the end, what we've done is not recreate gender roles and make a new Non toxic masculinity, we have just decided which toxic masculinity to idolize. Right. And that's why I think the geek guys latch onto this so much and mm-hmm. construct an identity around this movie that was so threatened by the idea of another movie being made. Like, guess what? We're not overwriting every VHS and DVD and digital file. Of Ghostbusters 1984 with 2016. It's a new movie. Right. But it's a threat.
1: Right. Yeah. And it seems much easier to just pick from the options of masculinity that already exist than to try to redefine it. It, It's so much less terrifying and also easier to defend amongst your peers and so it's really not surprising that this is what happened. And yet, it's disappointing. And and part of me thinks it's because I don't Ghostbusters is not a horror movie in my opinion, right?
0: Horror adjacent. It but has not horror, horror
1: elements, but I would not call it a horror movie. And I think that the genre not that there aren't problematic horror movies but I think that the genre of horror lends itself to more radical interesting takes on things like gender than a blockbuster movie I feel like Ghostbusters in some ways was required to reinforce gender roles where a horror movie wouldn't necessarily need to do that because it's meant to unsettle And it's meant to disrupt. And that's what people go to horror movies to see. But they go to a fun, silly, impressive effects, Boys Night Out type of movie, not to question what it means to be a man, but to feel included.
0: Yes. What is interesting to me, however, is I'm so used to horror being referred to as a genre movie and mm. the ways in which sci-fi and fantasy and horror and comedy are all genre films uh-huh. and so they're they're denigrated they are not considered as seriously so you can be more not progressive but subversive yeah you can be more subversive in a genre film it is true that horror is the bottom of that barrel. And you can slip a lot more threatening ideas into a horror movie. But I would argue that Ghostbusters is still a genre film. Uh Uh-huh. And it's just interesting the way that it's kind of like Star Wars. Sci-fi films and space operas that aren't Star Wars have really been, for the most part, ignored. And Ghostbusters, in reifying these cultural norms, I think that's why it was able to succeed where something else wouldn't have.
1: Do you think that films like Ghostbusters represent a turning point in which genre films become mainstream and fandom becomes mainstream and therefore we see more examples of genre films reinforcing cultural norms and ideas than before. Like where it used to be more free, it's now under more scrutiny because it's being viewed by larger audiences that expect to see their views reinforced on screen.
0: At least I would say that the genre films of the 80s, from my limited knowledge, would be what I would consider the turning point. Not necessarily Ghostbusters specifically.
1: Right, but just as, but era, as an example.
0: Yeah, is definitely rife with that happening. They're getting more of a chance, and the ones that are succeeding, I think, are perhaps not always the most interesting right. option.
1: Right. Very very fascinating
0: so that is going to be it for part one of ghostbusters good lord you know this conversation has gone on long enough <laughs> if you want to know when that next episode is dropping you should follow us on social media ghosts were people too on tumblr and on instagram you could email us gwp2pod at gmail.com
1: especially if you know anything about ghosts and Gilmore Girls, please send us an email
0: send us an email, follow us, give us reviews that would be wonderful, recommend us to your friends
1: so next time on part 2 of Ghostbusters we are going to be getting into many other topics including immigration invaders orientalism we're going to be talking about the ackroyd family and their links to spiritualism and the occult we're going to be talking about capitalism Uh, we're going to be talking about the rise of the religious right we're going to be talking about occult architecture and creeponomics doesn't that
0: sound like a good time
1: i know it sounds like a good time to me (laughs) So,
0: join us soon. We hope that Bustin' makes you feel good.
1: And, as it says on the Ouija board, goodbye. goodbye.